Well, hello there. I'm Adrian Warnock, and I'm here with a, a face that's very familiar to uh, at least people with CLL in the blood cancer world, and probably beyond that, because I know many other diseases that Andrew's worked with. So, Andrew, thank you for joining me. And could you just tell us, for anyone who doesn't know, a little bit about Patient Power and the organization that you started? Sure. So it's myself and my wife, Esther. And in uh, 2005, I started doing a radio show in Seattle, Washington, with sponsorship from some hospitals there. We were living there. And that became Patient Power. That's what I named it, because I wanted patients to be empowered and not just, you know, where the medical community or others just said, well, we're going to do this to you. I wanted patients to have a voice. And uh, so that began as the radio show and extended to the internet. And it was audio and on the telephone, on conference call bridges and in-person meetings. And today it's particularly video and articles on patientpower.info. Prior to that, I'll just mention though, um, my wife and I started doing patient programs in 1984. So oh, wow. from 1984 to 2005, we were already doing it. It just wasn't called Patient Power. You don't look old enough to have been doing Patient Power videos yeah, in yeah, 1984. Yeah, it, it was. And I sort of I fell mean, you, you started when you were 12, I presume, yeah? Yeah, I wish. I'm 69 now. But I fell into it because I was a television news reporter and then a national in the US TV producer. Uh, and uh, I was asked to do a documentary at a urology convention on men with erectile dysfunction. And I'd never been in a medical convention before. And I went around and there were all these products and medicines and doctors and pharmaceutical companies and government people and everything. And I realized there was no voice of the patient. Yeah. And yeah. so one of the companies said, could you produce a patient education video that we would like to support? And I said, what is that? And then they showed us what another company had done, which had men dealing with erectile dysfunction in the shadows, like they were um, silhouetted, like they were in prison. You oh know, I didn't goodness. want to be yeah. identified. <laughs> and I thought it was crazy that I thought people with health conditions do want to speak out they are living a life, they want to live a better life, they want to be cured or be healthier. And I, I couldn't see why it, with my communications background and then ultimately my wife says, well, we couldn't try to give voice to those patients. And if stakeholders, whether it was people making medical products or the government or insurance or whoever um, would support it, that we could fill that need. And that's what we've been doing, particularly in cancer in recent years. And then one other thing is, Adrian, you know this, along the way, I got diagnosed with cancer. So you were already doing this patient yes. power thing before, so had you even got the name patient power before this happened? Because I suppose no. in my mind, I had this idea that, you know, you, you had an no. epiphany because of your own experience and decided to do this. Well, it was, the epiphany was, yes, it did happen after, the patient power name did come after I was diagnosed with leukemia, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which I'd never heard of. But the feeling of patients needing to give voice to patients and doing things from the patient perspective and the patient being a full partner in their care, powerful. That had been around in my head for a while. And then I, and originally when I thought about it, I thought the symbol would be like a big red boxing glove. 
Oh, like, yes. Going like that. Almost like that it was going to not, no disrespect to you as a physician or anyone, but it was like, <laughs> we're going to tell you, you know, you, we're going to punch you in the nose if you don't listen to us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and you do see examples of that. I mean, classic example for, for blood cancers and certainly CLL, but I think some of the others as well, is fatigue, isn't it? That people uh, who have the experience of living with blood cancer, I don't even need to ask you, I'm sure that you've experienced fatigue, at least at some points in your journey, and yeah. whether all the time or... It's, it just happens, especially if you get treated, and even sometimes if you don't get treated. Yeah. And yet there are still doctors who will look at a patient with blood cancer who's perhaps newly diagnosed, and they might have even gone to be assessed for fatigue, you know, for, for, for a workup to see what's causing the fatigue. And lo and behold, blood cancer comes back and the doctor will look at them and say, oh, well, sorry, but there's no way that this level of blood cancer could be causing your fatigue. And it doesn't matter how many thousands of patient voices you can take them to on the internet or elsewhere, or even how many consultants who actually know about these diseases who say, yes, this is a symptom, to actually persuade these people. And some people still seem to think, that anemia is the only cause of fatigue and blood cancer, which of course it isn't true. I mean, right. is that a good example, do you think, Andrew, of what we're talking about? That, that is one example, but there are other things like uh, those of us who've had chemo, uh, we're very well aware of chemo brain. Yes, I'm too well aware of that. Things like that. Where but Andrew, I had that before I had chemo brain. That was the weird thing. I'm, I'm seriously, as my CLL got worse and my fatigue got worse, I already got what other people are describing as chemo brain. And I went, because I had surgery, I, I, that was the other thing, I had a weird thing. I had surgery on my tonsils, even though it was supposed to be leukemia, but it's kind of like a lymphoma as well. So I had to have my tonsils out. And so I went to a post-treatment group and I was mixing with other, other cancer patients who've had chemo. And they were describing their symptoms with chemo brain. And, and I'm thinking, that's what I've got already. I haven't had chemo yet. Yeah, well, certainly uh, any of these, there can be very vague symptoms. If you have a cancer in your blood and your blood goes yeah. throughout your body. It can start pushing buttons in unusual ways that can vary by patient. So, um, and I'm, you know, you mentioned at the outset, we do cover other cancers now, you know, and I developed eventually a second one called um, myelofibrosis, which is scarring in the bone marrow and could have been triggered by my earlier chemo treatment for the leukemia. We don't know, it's possible, but anyway, it's in a class of uh, blood cancers called myeloproliferative neoplasms. And it can have very weird symptoms where the same thing, the, it's hard to diagnose. People uh, can go on for years and they have this complaint or that complaint. Oh, it could be this, could be that. And it takes forever to get to the correct diagnosis, even though it's been debilitating to the patient. So that's why patients need to be strong advocates for themselves to try to have their situation acknowledged and really try to get to expert care as it, they can figure out who would be in the know and do what's right for them so they can live as well as they can. I'm fortunate. I live near uh, San Diego, California now. And part of the reason we settled here about four years ago was there were two world-famous doctors in the conditions I have nearby. Yeah, there right. you go. So, so you actually chose a house in order to be nearby partly to these doctors. That's an interesting, a strategic, what I would call a strategic decision, huh? Oh, it was. And it was, yeah, so that was very much in our decision. And I'm really glad because in my work, Adrian, 
you know, I've spoken to so many people who didn't get the right diagnosis from well-meaning doctors or pathologists or whatever, well-meaning people, but they didn't get the right diagnosis. And it maybe took them a long time where it could get it right and some people where it was never gotten right. So I think all we can do, and this is part of patient power, is try to help the patient and the family members be smarter, mm. feel empowered to be self-advocates, and to really go the extra mile to get the answers that resonate with them. You know, there was a, a guy who started, was one of the starters of this sort of patient empowerment movement, a guy named Gilles Friedman, who's remained a friend of mine. And Gilles, his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in New York City, and um, he just didn't feel like she was getting the right care. And what he started an internet group very early, way before the web, you know, just like an email group digest, still exists today, acor.org. He started it. But anyway, um, what I've heard him speak many times, and he said it's really the responsibility of the patient and the family member to verify what a doctor or a nurse is telling you, not that they have any special agenda, hopefully they don't, but that they may not be in the know as to what really applies to your situation then. And the person who suffers is you. So you gotta, you gotta really get smart. And so that's what we're devoted to with patient power. And that's what I'm devoted to every day. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's, there's two things that you've just spoken about, and both of them are a little bit controversial amongst some patients that I find. One is, should we as a patient find out everything there is to know about our condition? Um, because some patients would rather let the doctor do that. Sure. And then the second thing is, should we try and push to go and see a top doctor as much as we can, or at least obviously bearing in mind geography a little bit, but trying to get ourselves seen by somebody in the know who may be doing clinical trials, who may who may actually have more expertise to see more patients with that condition, particularly if it's a, a rare condition, which most of these blood cancers actually technically are. So, I mean, what's your thoughts on that? How do you handle the patients who say, no, look, I, I'd rather leave it to the doctor and I'd rather leave it to, to, to my local doctor, my oncologist perhaps, who, you know, they deal with every cancer. Why can't they deal with mine? Well, okay. So, um, so I ask people some questions. In the end, it's their decision, right? And yeah. I respect that. But I say, okay, do you believe that medical science is moving forward? That all the efforts made by scientists to research towards a cure or whatever it may be, do you believe that that's going on somewhere in the world? Well, yeah. And do you sometimes see articles in the newspaper, on television, here's some breakthrough or whatever. Do you see that uh, and believe that happens? Yes. I said, so is it possible that that's going on for the condition you have? Well, yes, it is. Okay. Now, if your doctor is a generalist, how can they keep up on all this stuff? And cancer is a, quite a good example. You know, Adrian, that let's say, I don't know what the number was, but let's say there used to be, when you went to medical school, they said there are 50 cancers. There's brain cancer, there's stomach cancer, you know, but different parts of the body, yeah. right? There was one breast cancer. Breast cancer is a good example. How many different biologic types of breast cancer are there now? HER2 new, triple negative, estrogen receptor positive, and they're treated differently. Okay, 
So yeah. if you have a general oncologist who is dealing with cancer, the brain, the lungs, the stomach, the colon, the breast, leukemias as well, and you believe that there's research going on somewhere and maybe stuff happening, something new, yeah. how could your poor doctor stay up to date? They may be six months behind or a year behind. And could that delta, if you will, miss exactly what's critical for you at the time? So in other words, to say it bluntly, what your doctor doesn't know may kill you. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, for me personally, I mean, you've mentioned it, so I might as well own it. I, I am a doctor, uh, but when I got my diagnosis, I was lying in a hospital bed as a patient. And well, initially it was a sort of three quarters diagnosis. I was told it was almost certainly CLL. But I can tell you then that anything that I did remember about leukemia or blood cancers in general was at least 22 years old because I'd, I'd sent it sure. in psychiatry, which perhaps explains some of my interest in psychology, which we'll come on to in a minute. Um, but, but for me, I knew nothing. And I, I, one of my battles actually was to be treated as a normal patient. That when, when people came to me, sometimes, not often, but sometimes a doctor or nurse would say, well, you must know this. And I say, no, please, just assume I know nothing. Now, of course, now I've, I've used, you know, programs like your own and others to make sure I upskill myself and I've read clinical trials. And I guess I've got an advantage in terms of my scientific background. Um, but I'm quite passionate about that. But some people say to me, Adrian, you spend too long. You know, it's just going to make you more anxious to, to know all this information makes you more anxious. How would you answer people who, who would say that? Well, I think there are degrees. I think most importantly, you want to secure a healthcare team that you believe is in the know, that yeah. you have confidence in. That's really where the heavy lifting is, okay? So that I don't feel that I need... Um, I, that I need to know everything, but I do want to feel that the doctor or healthcare team I have, I can trust that they are really in the know. And then when we have a discussion, I ask them a lot of questions. I'm in a sense ver verifying right then based on maybe some other data points, but no, I'm not a scientist. I don't, there are people who want to do that. You know, we've all met patients who want to delve in and study that uh, very much. Our friend Brian Kaufman with the CLL Society, he's yeah. a doctor. He's really into the science. I try to keep it straight, but I'm, I think job one is to have the healthcare team that you feel you can rely on. Give me a couple of pointers as to how you would do that. I mean, obviously I'm timed to the whole, the whole process. Well, I, I, wrote a book, I wrote a book about nine years ago as people were starting to use the uh, web to seek information. And uh, the book is called The Web Savvy Patient. And I need to redo it because a lot of the um, websites and things have changed, things like that. But the, really it was about how do you identify information and then how do you discuss it in a positive, productive way with your doctor to take action with them or someone else. So it's really the process. And that information I think still stands true. So to answer your question, I think the first thing is get an accurate diagnosis and be confident in that. There are many people who are misdiagnosed, particularly with different types of cancer uh, and mm -hmm. blood cancers. And now we know there are the, all these subtypes. And increasingly it is, what is the genomic signature of yeah. my cancer? 
Okay. So these are the genetic mutations and the genetic yeah. what's, deletions they talk about. What's driving it? Yeah. Because the treatments that are being developed are different for different subtypes. Okay. Yeah. So that's and that's only just begun in some blood cancers, hasn't it? But it's it's certainly coming. Yeah. It's very important. So first of all, have accurate testing to know what are you dealing with. <clears throat> and then the next question is, who um, is knowledgeable in that, what you have, okay? They may be in your town. They may be this way down the highway instead of that way. They may be at another part, even in your country or in another state in the U.S. Depends, okay. The way you can find out, one way you can find out is you can, can do a search of some of the medical journal articles that come out on the yeah. topic that you, for your diagnosis. And you can see yeah. who the authors are. Yeah, and you know, Andrew, there's a really neat tool that I found a little while ago that no one seems to know about. And I need to try and find it again because I've lost it. But if I can find it again, I'll share it with the, when I mm -hmm. post this video online, which allows you to literally be very specific and put a subject in. Like you could put literally one rare disease and it will tell you in the world who are the top published <laughs> authors in that subject. And then you can specify into your country and it will actually list the hospitals that they work in even as well. Sometimes, obviously, you've got to verify because they might have moved and things I like that. But it's a really good way of doing it. Yeah, I'll share it's that great. with you and with everyone so, when we watch the video. So basically, who's publishing for yeah. the medical community and doing research in what you have, okay? Exactly. And then now they may or may not become your doctor, but many of them are quite contactable to say, well, Mr. Smith, where you are in this thing, I think I know that there's a very knowledgeable uh, doctor or clinic uh, that I correspond with, or maybe I train them or wherever that's there. Yeah. And here's how to get in touch. Right. So it's basically it's a little bit of detective work. But so first, the right diagnosis. Second of all, getting to a knowledgeable provider. And then I would say the third part is staying informed enough so that you can ask intelligent questions as you have meetings with that provider. So. Yeah. Very good. Right. And then and then the yeah. other thing uh, is, Adrian, I think you were talking about fatigue earlier and all these kind of things, we have to speak up about what's going on for us. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sleeping. I have swollen joints. I feel like I'm walking around with a low-grade fever. I have a chronic cough. Um, I'm depressed. I yeah. don't even feel like getting out of bed. Whatever it is, rather than the doctor saying, how are you doing, Adrian? You say, fine. Yeah. You have to level with yeah. it. No, exactly. And I think um, it's hard enough to level with them on the physical stuff. But I think when you're talking about the more subtle things, whether it's fatigue or whether it's emotional distress, I mean, I, I'm guessing that I don't think any cancer patient really gets through this journey without at least some emotional distress. And yet no. we don't talk about it as much as I think we should. And some people um, are a little bit reticent to talk about that, either with each other or with their doctors. Have you got any comments or perhaps personal experiences on that? Well, I'll just mention not only not talking to the doctors, but if you have a partner, whether it's a, a spouse, a partner of any gender or uh, children, we often don't say because we don't want them to worry or we're worried about triggering, we do, we're worried about their anxiety or their health. So yeah, we bottle sure. it up inside. And I think that's true 
Um, I'm generally a glass half full person, but there are times I worry. I mean, when I was first diagnosed, I was 45 and um, I just, I remember walking in the park and I just thought, well, I, you know, I have two kids and I've had a pretty good life and maybe this is it, you know, and I, I was pretty down time. I wanted to live longer. Fortunately, I'm 69 now, so I've had that opportunity, but I was, it was pretty tough coming to terms that this is it, leukemia, you're a dead man. You know, fortunately it hasn't worked out that way. So that process of confronting your own mortality, what do you think it taught, taught you back then? Oh, tremendously. I mean, and I think you'll hear this from many people who've been diagnosed with a serious condition is, um, this sounds trite, but sort of living for today, living in the moment, appreciating what you have. I mean, um, as we do this recording, Adrian, the world is racked with this coronavirus and this sure. pandemic. I am a super blessed guy in that I get to work in the digital world trying to help other patients and I can do that from my home. Yeah. Wow, am I lucky, right? And I live in a decent home where I've got a little room to move around and um, our son is with us, who's 23, and I feel good about that. And I told him, I said, he's working in the digital world too. I said, you are a lucky dog. So every day I celebrate that. And it's funny, we did a program a couple of weeks ago with a rabbi and a minister. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I must watch that one. I didn't see that. Yeah, see please. I'll, I'll send you I'll the make sure I put a link on that as well. I'll, I'll comment yeah. on that. I've got a link and, on that. Yeah. And yeah. the rabbi was talking about gratefulness, right? Gratitude. Yeah, really important. When she opens her eyes in the morning, she takes a breath and she's thankful for that. She feels, can she feel her toes and her arms and her legs, you know? Mm. Um, she can go into the bathroom, does everything work, washes her face, you know? It's just really, but I mean, we take that for granted, but we've been given another day. And if the systems are functioning pretty well, Tremendous gratitude for that. So that's me. And I share that sometimes with my wife. She doesn't externally think about it that way, but I do. Mm. I, I, and, I, and she accuses me of spoiling our kids, like this 23-year-old son, the youngest of three, uh, and he's living with us right now during the pandemic. And I bring him coffee in the morning and this and says, well, why don't you have him go get it? But I want to I wanna do that. You know? Yeah, no, sure. When you can, because I guess you've yeah, had times in your life where you couldn't, you know, when you've been in hospital. Exactly. Because I know you've had a transplant. There's all sorts of things we could talk about, and I know you've got to get away, so I won't take your time. But I guess, you know, right now, you can do it, and you don't know when you next won't be able to do it, and you know that there have been times where you haven't been able to do it, so you want to bless other people, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, exact. that's exactly right. So it's, uh, you know, if you talk about spirituality, I do believe in God. Uh-huh. I do believe in a moral life. Uh, I do believe in doing, always trying to do the right thing and help others. Uh, patient power, while it is a business to sustain itself, sure. it's not about driving a Rolls Royce or living in the yeah. house on the hill or anything. It's about giving back. And we try to encourage that in others. And that's 
so think about this. I was a journalist, right? Then I, I got exposed to trying to give voice to patients. Then I became a patient. Then I was in a clinical trial and survived yeah. longer than people had before. And then I was actually retreated for leukemia. Then I developed a second cancer. And lo and behold, there was a fairly effective medicine, which so far has controlled it. Why? Why? I asked myself, why? Was there a higher power that said, Andrew, we're going to give you some time to do this work that you do? So for me, it's very much a mission, very much a mission. That's wonderful. Yeah, and I guess that's probably a good place to stop it because you did say at the beginning of the call that you, you had to get away, and I understand that because you're a busy guy. My diary is empty these days. Your diary is rammed full, and I just hope that you continue to have plenty of energy and plenty of hope to keep doing the stuff that you're doing. More power to your elbow, Andrew. Thank you. Well, Adrian, one of the things that uh, I'll mention that we're doing, so um, my wife Esther's uh, partner in all this, so about two months ago, we before we were all locked in our homes, um, we went to the neighborhood Starbucks and we were talking, I said, you know, this stuff is happening fast. We should start doing regular live broadcasting for people living with specific cancers because mm -hmm. the general media is saying, oh, people may be vulnerable if, you know, whatever, if you're older or whatever, but there was nothing specific for our audiences living with different cancers. So we started doing, at our own expense, 30-minute live programs with world experts who volunteered to be on the programs for people with specific cancers. Yeah, and I was so, on one of those the other day listening. Yeah, so we've done like 30 of them. And I'm doing one today, actually, for people with one of these conditions. I have myelofibrosis. And the doctors are great and patients are on. Anyway, so there's an immediate need to help people with information, get answers to questions. And as we're on this journey, the whole world is in fighting for survival, if you will. Um, that has lots of issues, the spiritual issues, the clinical issues, the yeah. family, you know, million, which we kind of keep tackling. So I'm kind of energized doing that you know yeah that's great and we all appreciate it and i guess that's the point isn't it that you can you can have a diagnosis like blood cancer um, and you can sit down and you can think well that's it then like you did or you can think i'm gonna i'm gonna do what i can i'm gonna take charge like we talked about i'm gonna make sure that i've got the right diagnosis got the right team get the right treatment maybe get involved in the clinical trial um so i'm guessing you were in a clinical trial for fcr back when it was new yes, if i've got the time I right yeah. Patient number 60, where it all started. At number Indian 60 in a trial for FCR. And of course, now FCR is considered old style, old school. So, yeah. But it's done good for you, man. Uh, yeah, I, I, I may be one of I the last a, people to have it. So I hope it does well for me too. Yeah, I had a 17-year remission. I'm very grateful. Did it lead to a second cancer that I have developed, myelofibrosis, that's controlled? Maybe. We don't know. But I never would have had time. those... If I hadn't had the FCR, I never would have had those 17 years, period. You sure wouldn't, because you didn't have anything else to have then. So, I mean, the challenge now, of course, is knowing which one to do, which is why the trials can be helpful. So I did a trial 
um, where I was, you know, randomized between that gold standard that gives you the 17 years, but may or may not have some of these side effects versus, you know, Ibrutinib, which is the current sort of thing that everyone's assuming yeah. is wonderful. But we don't actually know whether Ibrutinib will give someone 17 years because it's not been around that long. Mm. Um, and uh, Ibrutinib plus Venetoclax, which kind mm. of looks a bit like the combination of the two because you hit them over the head hard in short time but hopefully it's a bit less toxic than FCR. Nobody really knows which of those is best. So I thought, well, do you know what? I might as well just flick a coin. And I guess you must have had a similar view all those years ago. Might as well give it a go and see what happens, huh? Well, I'll mention one other thing. So there was a fellow on that original email internet group that I was part of, um, that I mentioned earlier, and he had a transplant for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Okay. And when it became clear I needed treatment, he said, oh, you should have a transplant. And actually, it was a British doctor in Boston, John sure. Ribbon, who was doing the trial. And he said, oh, I had a transplant, and I'm cured, and you should do it versus the FCR, okay. the drug therapy. And I decided I didn't want to be kind of out of commission. I'm sorry, there's a... That's okay. Uh, I hope that's not your car being stolen or something. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's the Rolls Royce outside, isn't it? You were yeah, yeah, you, you know, you I, I didn't want to be out of commission, um, yeah. which would have been required with the transplant because I had so much to do. In the FCR, I could kind of keep working. So that's what I did. Okay. Anyway, okay. Here, yeah. I, here I am. I'm very grateful. I wish you well. You know, and you're doing stuff for people. people. That's the point. If we all do it, if we all play our part, you know, yourself, Obviously, people like um, the CLL Society, the other patient groups, and, and just an ordinary patient who maybe you know hasn't got a big society behind them, but can just share their own experiences in a forum or on a blog or or even just with their doctor. Because sometimes we're educating the doctors, aren't we? Yes, we are, and that's okay. That's yeah. okay, and hopefully we're all your learning together. Grateful. That's right. Just like we talked about this virus, you know, and. Yeah. I tell the doctors I, that I interview, I say, it's okay if you say, we don't know now, yeah. we don't know yet, but we're all trying to figure it out. That's okay. That's yeah, right. and, and I guess hopefully we'll, we'll still be around for a good few more years yet, Andrew, and learning together, hey? Yes, sir. I hope all so. Right. Adrian, thank you for having it's wonderful. me. No, it's been great to chat, and I must let you go now. Um, you know, you've been, you've been very helpful, and hopefully we'll chat some more. And I've certainly been on some of your patient power videos myself as a participant, happy to carry on and do that a little bit more at times when it's appropriate. And uh, very much enjoy what you do and think it's a great job you do. So keep going. All right. Take God care best. there in the UK, Adrian. And I'll you. See you. All the best. Bye. See you. Bye-bye. That's awesome. Well, you've made it to the end of an episode of Adrian Warnock's Christian Podcast. You must have some stamina. Well done. And if you liked what you heard, you know what to do. Subscribe, review, tell all your friends about it. And in the meantime, why not visit adrianwarnock.com.